You're tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Two Maui men have begun serving prison sentences for a violent attack on a property owner who was moving into a home he had just purchased. The victim testified in court that the Native Hawaiian men, Kaulana Ahlo Ka'anoi and Levi Aki Jr., told him he was the wrong color and didn't belong there. Christopher Kunzelman was beaten with a shovel and left unconscious. A jury found the duo guilty of a hate crime. One of the defendants had been implicated in a second unprovoked attack on another white man. HPR reporter Kuve Hiraishi joins us in the studio today to talk about context. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Yeah, to help us contextualize Kahakuloa, for example, this uh, sort of isolated uh, rural Hawaiian uh, fishing and farming community over on the northwest side of Maui, uh, we spoke to UH Manoa Hawaiian language professor Kapa Oliveira, who considers Kahakuloa her ancestral homeland. Unlike other places, the majority of the ohana in Kahakuloa have been on the same aina for generations, spanning perhaps hundreds, if not thousands of years. And so for us, our relationship to the aina differs from those who purchase their land. For us, this is our kulaibi. This is where our kupuna are, are buried. And so the aina itself is considered by many of us to be ohana. We we take care of the land as if it's ohana, and we don't see it as a commodity to be bought or sold. So in this case, uh, both parties end up arguing about whether or not the incident fits this criteria of quote-unquote anti-white hatred. And the prosecution, like you uh, say, claims the use of the word haole by uh, one of the men, at least in the video, we are able to see one utterance of haole. Um, during the incidents is is evidence of that. And so the term haole in Hawaiian language, as some might know, can mean foreigner, can mean white person. Uh, but for uh, Professor Judy Rohr, author of the book Haole is in Hawaii, uh, Haole is less about race and skin color and more of this counter narrative uh, to white settler colonialism. So the arguments made in court, uh, at least according to Rohr, sort of narrowly frame right that incident as either racial racial ha- racial hatred or not racial hatred, very black and white. And so she's saying it sort of strips uh, Haole from that context of settler colonialism in Hawaii. And that doesn't allow for arguments about colonization, about land dispossession, about land desecration, illegal occupation. None of that can fit in the courtroom. Then we get this decision that perpetuates this terrible narrative that we in Hawaii are all familiar with, this terrible narrative of savage, violent natives who act out of hatred of white people, right? And that's an old and dangerous story that helped justify all of the violences of colonization. And it's a story that uses the word haole as supposed evidence of that hatred. So in the aftermath of this federal hate crimes ruling, uh, in speaking to Oliveira, for example, you know, she says there's a big concern. And I think I've heard this from a number of Native Hawaiians in uh, light of this ruling that uh, Native Hawaiians may become fearful of expressing themselves in their own language, in their homeland, and calling out, as uh, Roar uh, mentioned, that colonial settler whiteness. And uh, Oliveira fears the use of Hawaiian words like haole can be weaponized against Native Hawaiians. And Roar argues, if anything, we need more uh, discussions of haole and settler settler colonialism if we're going to reduce sort of the root causes of hate in Hawaii. This is sort of that starting point. That counter discourse is something that we need more of, not less of. Right, because in our current crisis of white nationalism and climate catastrophe, we need more, not less, of the calling out, right, of white supremacy and settler colonialism. Right, so those of us who are who are howly, we might think of that counter discourse as an invitation to stop being so defensive, to learn the history, to become accountable to stop making everything about us personally, right? And to act in solidarity. We decide what kind of howly we will be. So strong words on, I think, a very a sensitive topic uh, when we think about it, but glad we're having uh, this conversation. Uh, when it comes to sort of this underlying understanding that uh, Oliveira was uh, alluding to earlier about 
sort of that clash in cultural values and understandings of what uh, Aina might be um, for Native Hawaiians versus um, someone who wants to, you know, come in and, and just purchase it and this is mine and you can't, you know, uh, come near here. Uh, this idea is something that came with the structures of settler colonialism, is, is what Rohr is saying, and understanding sort of that complexity and that nuance is something uh, that isn't taken into account in the ruling, uh, but also is something that is um, available or something that was talked about uh, in the aftermath of the ruling. And uh, as far as the, the actual facts of the case, so basically this property went up for sale. I don't know if it was in foreclosure. And then this gentleman, you know, decided to move to Hawaii right. uh, and purchased it. And right. He, he was moving in that that day that he was beaten. Yeah. So that that is those are the facts of the case. I haven't uh, delved too much into the backstory of that. Uh, but that is what we know from from uh, the the court records. I know now uh, the men, the two Kakulua men have uh, served their time. I think one had probation, one did uh, jail, uh, prison time for the initial 2014 assault charges. And so this federal hate crime came in after that. And so now they're uh, attacking on, let's see, a six, I think, six-year prison sentence for Aki and then something like four months and, uh, or four years and f uh, six months for uh, Aloka Onohi. Right, and then basically the how the home is still, still there, locked up. Uh, he can't sell it, or I don't he, know. He hasn't been able to sell it, from what I uh, take. And folks have been chiming in in light of the ruling, wanting to uh, buy it for folks there in Kahakulo. So we shall see what happens with the Hale. All right. Okay. Well, thanks so much, Kuvehi. That was HPR reporter Kuvehi Reishi taking a deeper look at the recent federal hate crime ruling against two Native Hawaiian men from Maui. This happens to be Consumer Protection Week, and today is National Slam the Scam Day. We talk with Craig Gima, spokesman for AARP Hawaii, who just put out an alert about a social media scam circulating in the islands. AARP has also begun a fraud network where you can report scam attempts to help authorities in their investigations. Here's Gima. We set up the Fraud Watch Network because financial security is important so that you can live the life you choose as you age, right? You have to have some financial security. And we found that people... People are losing money, right? And you, you, you can lose your financial security if you fall victim to fraud. So what, what we do is we have, a, we have a whole webpage and we have a whole section of our, what ARP does devoted to teaching people how to fight back. You can report frauds and there's a map that we have that, that shows what are the common frauds being reported now, you know, right in the, in the last few weeks in Hawaii. So what are we seeing? We're seeing a lot of, of the grandparent scam, which is, you know, uh, people, someone claims to be a police officer in Mexico and your, your grandson has been arrested and you need to bail him out. And so how can you send money? You know, buy a gift card and give me the numbers and, I, and we'll release your son or do granddaughter, whoever. You know, a lot of them, they get information off of Facebook and the Internet, things, you know, where, where people's personal information is easily available. And so that, that they use that to try and convince you that they actually have something. And what they do is they try and throw you off so that you're not thinking rationally. If you think rationally, you might figure out, hey, there's something, something's off with this, I'm, it's a scam. But if you, if you have fear or you, know, you have love for your, for your grandchild and you're, you, um, you know, you, you, it might throw you off so you're not thinking rationally anymore. And that's really what, that's what they try to do and that's when the scams work. And older people do have more money to lose. Yes, so what we find is that they, 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 scammers like older people, they lose more money. When they, get, when they fall victim to fraud. Younger people actually fall victim more often, but they lose less money. You know, younger people are more trusting, actually, than older people. But when older people do fall victim to fraud, they, they tend to lose more money. We have lots of federal agencies that are looking at all kinds of scams. You know, the FBI was warning last month about romance scams. And the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, has a report out, right? The top 10 top uh, frauds. Top 10 frauds in, in Hawaii. So what what they found the imposter scams, so the grandparent scam is a is a variation of the imposter scam where they're impersonating someone. 
the I, you know, government official scams, you know, where they, they, they say you're from the IRS and you're going to get arrested unless you give them money, or utility scams where, where they say they're from the electric company or the, and your electricity is going to cut off unless you give them money, usually in the form of a gift card. If, if somebody asks you for a gift card as a payment, that's a red flag. It's, it's likely to be a fraud. Because gift cards are for gifts. It's not for paying somebody or paying the IRS or paying the, your utility bill. So these are some of the other frauds. Uh, mm-hmm. Lottery frauds, that's very common. Internet frauds, investment frauds, healthcare frauds. Sometimes they'll ask you for um, your Medicare information or your insurance information. So they can use that to commit insurance fraud against the insurance companies or the government, right, if it's Medicare. Travel scams, privacy scams, job opportunity scams are, are common. We haven't seen it lately, and it's not in the top. And it's not in the top ten categories, so maybe that's why. Rental scams too, right? When if there's like a demand for rental housing and rental housing is expensive, you sometimes see these ads for places that are too good to be true, and that's another thing you should always watch out for. On the internet, especially the shopping scams are common, where you see a, an ad on Facebook or Instagram or any of the social media services. I shouldn't single out single out any any particular one. But they advertise like a product that you've been looking for. The price is really, really, really low. And sometimes you don't just don't know this company. There's sometimes they even fake websites that look like companies you know. And you order the product and you send them the money. It never arrives. They just take your money. We often hear a, a lot, too, about verify this number, you know, because your your merchandise is almost there. And you're like, um, did I order anything oh, yeah, recently? Those, pack, those are package scams. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a, it's a big clue that it's a scam if they tell you that click on a link for a package that you know that you've never ordered. <laughs> That's a clue. Once you log in, they have that information. They can order stuff on your account. Well, you know, we are seeing uh, lots of uh, postings about the folks that are selling fake gold jewelry. And sadly, you know, they're they're on a number of islands. And the older people are falling prey because they, they think it's a good deal. They're getting, you know, real gold and it's not real gold. You just have to always be on alert. And it's it's hard. People who think they're too smart for these kinds of scams are likely the ones to fall victim. Because if you think you don't, you know it, and you think, oh, I, I'm smart enough, you're more vulnerable. You, you, should all, you have to be always on alert for scams, for things that are too good to be true, for people asking personal information, for um, imposter scams where people say they're your friend. Sometimes you get, well, we put out a warning this week about um, a scam on social media where you get a, a, a message on, uh, from a friend, from an actual friend's account and saying, hey, I need some help with, um, I'm trying to become a social media ambassador. I want to be an influencer. And can you help me? And then when you reply to that message, they'll give you some information and say, we need to verify. It's not even clicking on a link. You have, we have to verify that it's really you. And so they'll, uh, you do that and what you get a message from, from Instagram or Facebook or whatever, any one of the social media sites, and they'll say, click, you know, they'll have some information and you give that information to them, it might be a link or it might be just numbers, you give that information to the scammers, they're able to access your account and they take it over and they can lock you out of your own social media account. And what they do is they, they'll, they'll go after your friends to see if you'll, they'll fall victim to the same scam that you fell victim to. And that happened to a friend um, in Honolulu recently. And so that's why we put out an alert about that. Well, you know, and I'm just looking at the FTC numbers for Hawaii, and uh, they had, what, 1,777 fraud reports, 7.8 million in losses, and the average loss was $991. I mean, $1,000. Yeah, that's a a hit. Yeah, you know, and these are only what's reported, right? There's a lot of scams that are not reported, so the actual number is probably much higher than that. Anything else that uh, you folks are doing this week just to get the word out? For us, it's not a weekly thing. We always have a website that has information on scams and whatever whatever scams are going around. That's at aarp.org slash fraudwatchnetworker. And then we also have a phone number, a help, um, I think we call it a hotline. So if you've been, been a victim of a fraud, you can report the frauds to, to us. And we have a map that's available. Um, you can get to it through aarp.org slash fraudwatchnetwork. Just scroll down a little bit. And the frauds that are reported to us, we, we, we list them. And, and so you can see the frauds that are being reported in your neighborhood. You want to report a scam or you, you've been a victim of a scam or you know someone who's been a victim of a scam, you can call the AARP Fraud Watch Network helpline. That number is 877-908-3360. 
877-908-3360, or you can go to the website, aarp.org slash fraudwatchnetwork, and, and get to the reporting site as well. We have trained volunteers who will help you with next steps if you become a victim of fraud. That was Craig Gima, spokesman for ARP Hawaii, talking about the steps you can take to protect yourself from fraud. And one additional tip to safeguard your accounts is to set up a two-step authentication process to make it more difficult for scammers to access your passwords or other sensitive information online. Support for HPR comes from Chamber Music Hawaii, celebrating 40 years, presenting an evening of melee with Riotea Helm and the Spring Wind Quintet, March 18th at Paliku Theater and March 19th at Blue Note Hawaii, chambermusichawaii.org. I'm Marco Werman. On the world, we get an outside perspective. I love lots of things about Russia. We all share the love for Syria. Because getting outside yourself can be a good thing. The act of empathy is fundamentally an act of imagination. It's a, somebody says to me, Kwame, I can't imagine what you go through as a black person. And I'll say, try. It is the world. This afternoon at 1. Support for HPR comes from Mid-Pacific, committed to sparking creativity and unlocking student potential with deeper learning. Accepting applications for the 2023-2024 school year, midpac.edu. It is now time for our reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat editor Chad Blair in to talk about the airfare wars. Good morning, Chad. Good morning, Catherine. So we've got a story today uh, written by Stuart Yurden. Right, and it's uh, Hawaiian Airlines versus Southwest Airlines. It's hard to believe it's been almost four years now that Southwest has been operating here. And, you know, Bottom line, we're winning, meaning the consumers. <laughs> there are some pretty good ticket deals out there, at least inner island, uh, $39 one way in, in some cases. Uh, but it's hurting Hawaiian Airlines' uh, bottom line. They lost $240 million in 2022. That's their third straight year of losses. Uh, there's a number of reasons. They include higher fuel prices, labor costs, of course, the lingering effects of the pandemic, and probably more than just about anything, the fact that the Japanese market is just is not coming back a little bit, but nothing like uh, it has been historically and, as you know, a very big part of the tourism pie here. Yes, and I, I admit I have taken advantage of those $39 uh, trips <laughs> because, boy, we haven't seen that in, gosh, I think a decade or more. Yeah, I was actually kind of flashing back uh, because Stuart uh, mentions – well, even more than a decade, uh, back to the early 2000s. And remember when Go Airlines, and that's lowercase g mm -hmm. apostrophe, remember that? Go Airlines operated by Mesa. And, of course, the fare wars that were going on primarily with Aloha Airlines at the time, I seem to recall $19 uh, one-way inter-island fares. Well, we know how that story ended. Mesa and Go are gone. And Aloha Airlines went out of business in 2008. I actually just looked up the Wikipedia page on that. I saw a story by me that I wrote for PBN about when uh, when Aloha had to declare bankruptcy for the, the second time. So Stewart does at least raise the specter uh, of a, a, you know, a possible collapse. These things don't often sustain themselves uh, because, you know, that bottom line is affected. We should tell you, Southwest Airlines, even though it's, as you know, has had some bad headlines lately, uh, they're doing pretty darn good. They they had $539 million in revenue in, in 2022, as did a whole lot of uh, mainland carriers that are bouncing back. Yes, and, and uh, you know, we don't know how long these uh, uh, discounted prices are going to last. Mm. Uh, I know Stuart says, oh, maybe at least uh, through the spring. Yeah, he did ask. He, he tried to get an answer. And, of course, neither carrier is going to tell us uh, about that. By the way, Hawaiian still has 
a 46% of the of the the share here in terms of uh, carriers. Uh, Southwest is way back at 17%, and then United Airlines is is just behind that. And another advantage that Hawaiian has is that the neighbor island, uh, much more, uh, many more flights. Um, and we should tell you that uh, even though it's been difficult for Hawaiian, when they compare it to Southwest. Hawaiian's really doing pretty good. They have a 22% higher load factor, which is really basically looking at how many seats they're filling. Uh, they're actually making more money per revenue mile uh, based on the seats. Uh, and they actually are charging more on average, about 51 bucks uh, for, uh, and that's twice, right? Almost twice of uh, that $39 fare that we're talking about. So, and then there's another thing they have, uh, Hawaiian has in its advantage, and is that the loyalty. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, they're a very big part of our local economy. A lot of money goes here, a lot of jobs. I, I don't know anybody that doesn't know somebody <laughs> that works for Hawaiian Airlines. You see them, you know, when you're flying to, to the other islands and so forth. And so those kind of, um, if you will, uh, integral Structural supports bode well for Hawaiian survival. Yeah, and you know Hawaiian has uh, uh, made great gains in in new routes, you know, uh, to Japan, uh, the mm. East Coast, uh, you know, and and uh, and you know, so yeah, if you want your pog, you know, you've got folks that are very loyal <laughs> that will 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 take uh, you know just Hawaiian. Yeah, exactly. And and on the horizon, Hawaiian, I think it's going to break in, in 2024 when this happens, but it's already been reported. There's a cargo deal uh, with Amazon that's going to be launched that is in the works that's almost certainly going to help Hawaiian Airlines' uh, bottom line. Um, and you're also seeing a, a rebound in um, other popular markets uh, in the Pacific, Australia, New Zealand, South Korea. Those numbers are bouncing back from from COVID times, but as we said, not Japan. And by the way, another concern for Hawaiian Airlines is that the yen, the currency in Japan, it, it remains very weak against the dollar, even for those Japanese tourists that do make it here. Who boy, is it a lot of money uh, to get a hotel room here in the islands. That's always been a, a, a challenge here. So, so a lot of things uh, at play here. It'll be interesting to see how it goes. Um, I wouldn't bet that those low fares will last forever, but we'll see. Yeah, so folks need to go and take advantage of them while they see them. <laughs> uh, oh, my gosh. But, yeah, you know, I, and uh, Hawaiian is, like you said, uh, making um, as much as it can about being the local airlines and hoping that, uh, you know, folks will keep them in the air. Exactly. All right. Well, thanks so much, Chad. Thanks, Catherine. To read Stuart Yurton's story highlighted in our reality check today, visit civilbeat.org. For some pet owners, the connection they have with their animal is more than just an emotional one. It's therapeutic. That is the premise behind the film, The Year of the Dog. It centers on Matt, a young man struggling with sobriety who starts an unexpected friendship with a stray husky named Yupik. The film was written and directed by Rob Grabo, who also stars as Matt. It was produced by Oahu-born Ryan Leong, whose uncle, David Leong, started Dave's Hawaiian Ice Cream. The Conversations, Russell Subiano got a chance to talk with uh, Grabo and uh, Leong ahead of tonight's screening of the film that will benefit the Hawaiian Humane Society. This first question is for Rob. Where did the idea for this film come from? Was it a personal experience, or did it come from the experience of someone you know? I grew up in rural Alaska most of my childhood, and I grew up in communities where addiction was pretty rampant. And I had people very close to me growing up who died from alcoholism. There's a story in the film where the character played by Michael Spears, Fred, is talking to my character, and he tells him a story about someone who went out to the garden to pick dandelions and had a reaction to that. Well, that's based on a true story. My mom was sponsoring a friend of ours from one of the, the native communities, and she had asked him to go out to the to the garden to pick dandelions to just kind of give him a task to do. And I watched him from the deck. He went out there. This was a close family friend. He went out there. He worked for about 15, 20 seconds. Then he threw the trowel down, and he marched across the property through a slough that was chest deep, and he caught a bus from North Pole, Alaska to Fairbanks and went on a week-long bender because of the stress caused by that request. And 
I think he was 23 or 24 at the time, and I was like 10. And he died three years later from from alcoholism. So for me, it was important to give voice to the struggles that go along with addiction, but then, you know, also more broadly, just any subjective experience of suffering and how, you know, if we have to do that alone, it's, it's probably one of the most painful things there is to be suffering and feel alone. Yeah, that idea of loneliness is something that I hear a lot of different agencies address, especially when it comes to things like domestic violence or or any kind of abuse. It's this idea that they want to make sure that people know that they're not alone. And that seems to be kind of the start of their journey to healing. And I know you cover that in the film as well. What are your thoughts on this idea of letting people know that they're not alone? How does that help them get out of whatever kind of bad situation they might be in? I think about why it actually truly really helps you know maybe it goes back to when we're when we're kids i mean when we're afraid i think our system has you know a series of reactions it can try to fight it can try to flight and then it can also try to freeze and i think when we're alone there's an internal systemic reaction to kind of shut down sometimes and to not engage and to withdraw and that withdrawing can become a habit and then we lose a sense of engagement with the world around us and that furthers this isolation cycle. And if we have someone with us, or we have the sense that someone is with us, it can create in us a sense of warmth. And that can be enough to keep us kind of going forward and engaging with the world. I had a really close friend of mine in September take his own life. And a lot of people around him didn't know that he was suffering. And I think he had isolated himself in a way internally, because he just felt like people weren't actually there for him. And he didn't ask for help and people didn't really offer it. And I think that that, that plays into this for me too, where it's, it's, you know, it's incumbent on people who are feeling alone to be vulnerable, but then also people around them to just, to let them know that there's someone there if they need it, so that they don't retreat internally. Yeah, very important, not just for the person who is suffering to know that they're not alone, but also important for the community around them and the family around them, friends to reach out and, and check in as well. Ryan, what drew you to this particular project? What struck a chord with you enough that you wanted to share this story with audiences? So really, I didn't know a lot about the story or the film when I got involved a few years ago. Rob and I talk about connection have been good friends for 20 plus years now and so it was really just wanting to support and be part of a friend's you know desire to create something novel and new and and tell a story that he felt was important rob this question is for you i know well enough that casting is already a difficult process and it because it's so crucial to the telling of the story you know, like casting child actors, I know is much harder. And then I can only imagine that casting animals can present <laughs> even more of a challenge, right? I mean, so what's the story behind finding the dog that plays Yupik in the film? So we we knew early on that we wanted to cast a rescue animal if we could. And there were a lot of reasons for that. And so I got together with an animal trainer who's worked in Hollywood for like 30 years. His name's John Van Dyke. And he works exclusively with positive reinforcement. He worked recently on like a John Malkovich film. And he worked on Star Trek, Picard. And I reached out to him and he and I had a back and forth. And we went out and we actively searched for rescue animals that could look like an Alaskan Husky or a Siberian Husky. And we had a couple that we honed in on and we initiated the contact. And luckily they were, they got adopted pretty quickly by other folks. And then John sent me a picture and a video one day of Caleb when he found Caleb. And he was like, I think Caleb's perfect. And I saw Caleb and was like, yep, he's amazing. And he was a rescue that had been passed between homes because people said he was too energetic. Which, I mean, anyone who knows Siberian Huskies knows. I mean, they know that they're like toward the more feral end mm -hmm. of, the, of the dog breed. And they are highly energetic and they're incredibly willful. And John spent about nine or sorry, six weeks working with him. And when he had Caleb, Caleb could barely sit. And so he, John would just drill these really fun games with him for fetch, stay, speak, and come. And he was able to get him 
to do everything that we needed in the movie and more. I hear, too, that it hasn't gone to his head so far, like all the celebrity of it, which is very nice to hear. <laughs> There's a lot of beautiful dogs in, in the film as well. I, I don't know a whole lot of breeds, but I feel like I might have saw a pit bull doing some of the pulling and maybe maybe what I think is maybe like a Newfoundland, but there are a lot yeah. of beautiful dogs. This question is for Ryan. Ryan, I know you were born in Hawaii. I know you moved away at a very young age. But I know that you spent a lot of time visiting family here over the years. This story takes place in Montana during the winter. There are plenty, <laughs> yeah, there are plenty of beautiful scenes with snow-capped mountains and snow on the ground. And there's a competition featuring weight-pulling dogs that factor into the story. Ryan, how can people that live on a tropical island in the middle of the ocean relate to the story? Yeah, well, I think the story, right, the setting is the backdrop. I, I think it will be really interesting for people who are less accustomed to being around snow to see those visuals and, and that way of life. But really, the story is a universal story of human experience and connection, as, as Rob talked about. So I think, irregardless of the setting, it should be of interest to everybody. And I think of all places... You know, what brings me back, and my dad used to take me back multiple times every year, and I spent some extended times in the summers back in Hawaii uh, when I was on break from school, being with family. And I think Hawaii is unique in terms of its community, its orientation around family. And, and in fact, I just got back from bringing my two kids who are 5 and 18 months old to stay with family this past weekend because they had some time off from school. So I think that should appeal to the people in Hawaii. Right, and I also think there's this Native American, Native Alaskan thread that runs through the, the story as well that I think a lot of Native Hawaiians will be able to pick up on and, and, and be able to relate to. Yeah, no, I agree. I think there are a lot of themes in the movie that I think play well for, for folks there. One of the themes that struck me in this film is this idea of purpose. The main character has a purpose, then loses it, putting his journey at risk. The dog is introduced to us as a stray, an animal with no purpose, but over the course of the movie, attempts to fulfill his purpose. How does the idea of finding purpose factor into recovering from addiction? I mean, I can only speak indirectly. You know, I can speak about, you know, finding purpose you know, as we all deal with kind of the subjective experience of suffering or difficulty. And I can speak from, you know, stories that people who are close to me have shared about their own kind of recovery experience. I think purpose can be defined a lot of ways. I think in Matt's relationship with Yupik, just having to show up to make sure he has food, to make sure he has water, to take him out for walks, creates in him a sense of purpose. And I, I, I almost think that that sense of purpose actually is a felt experience of warmth. And that felt experience of warmth, as opposed to something colder, helps remind us that there are other things that are meaningful in our lives that can help get us reoriented away from what is wrong and what is difficult to what is possible. And that creates a, a, a felt experience of just a little bit of warmth and a little bit of joy. So I think small purpose showing up for someone else being there as support if they need it. You know, growing into a larger purpose of, I mean, like, what is it I'm actually supposed to do with my life gives us a focused kind of orientation. Um, yeah, I don't, I guess I, I, I struggle to even answer that. I, it, it's such a personal individual thing, but I think it's hard to overstate the importance of purpose in moving beyond, you know, a, a sense of pain or isolation or addiction or suffering. Thanks so much for your time, Rob and Ryan. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was filmmaker Rob Grabo and producer Ryan Leong talking with HBR's Russell Subiono. The film The Year of the Dog opens tonight at 7.55 p.m. at Consolid Theaters in Mililani. A portion of the proceeds will benefit the Hawaiian Humane Society. And we're going to leave you with a bit of the trailer. Uh, I'm Matt, and I'm an alcoholic. I'm not, I'm not. Okay, Matt. What's your plan? Step one, get sober. 
Step two, I will finish the hutch. And step three, I will stay sober for 30 days so that I can see my mom before she dies. There was no garden when I was a child. It's kind of tough being the new guy in the group, huh? Alcoholism, it's, it's a family disease. Not if they're not around. Now I sow seeds. This dog is stress. You don't need stress right now. I need this. How about we give it a week? Well, there's nothing in the world an Alaskan Husky loves more than pulling. Let's get a rig on him, see what he can do. Are you serious? I thought we had a deal. I lean in and you respond. Yupik is a very special name. He's a sensitive dog, and you will have to become sensitive too. Lean into that connection, okay? If there is a cure for addiction, it is someone you care for saying you are not alone. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, with art and artist-inspired talks, discussions, and programming for the community. Details of upcoming events at the What's On page at honolulumuseum.org. From the return of in-person events to the diverse voices you hear on HPR every day, there's so much to celebrate. See for yourself with our annual report hitting your email inbox next week. Not on our email list yet? Sign up at hawaiipublicradio.org slash newsletter. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally based customer care team committed to problem solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at mobi.com. first featured Dan O'Sullivan on the conversation last summer following a shark encounter he had he and his son Christian had while kayaking and looking for whales. The Maui photographer was forced to shutter his Paia gallery during the COVID shutdown and he picked up his camera and decided to capture the Valley Isle in a rare state of natural replenishment. He shot over a hundred thousand images. HBR's Lillian Song caught up with Sullivan to talk about his recently published book, Maui, Mocha de Makai. It's amazing to finally have this book printed and done. It was such a journey putting it together. It started during the COVID shutdown and we were losing our business and there was such a transition here on the island. And for me, photographing has always been almost therapeutic. It's what I love to do. And it's just something that gave me a purpose during the COVID pandemic. And, you know, I would go every single day and I would just go photograph. And it was a wonderful way to connect to the island, to see past all the craziness that was going on on the planet and how scary everything was at the time. It was a way just to, to be grounded and present and really go deeper with the land here and with the ocean. And to hike along the coast and up into the rainforest here on Maui is my favorite thing in the world to do, and to photograph that and get to share that beauty with people. So that's what I started doing. And every day during the shutdown, when I couldn't go to work, instead I went and photographed. And as time went on, I got deeper and deeper into the beauty of Maui. And, and this book kind of came out of that whole project, photographing everything from the underwater ecosystems and the whale migration to the summit of Haleakala and the Hana Coast. And it was just this wonderful journey. And I was so happy to 
you know, last week finally have this book come to fruition and, and have it come out and just share it with everybody. It was just a, a wonderful thing. Your background is as a photojournalist, award-winning photographer published in many national magazines, as well as local like Maui Noka Oi. You, with pictures, you tell stories. For you doing this book, it sounds like it was a passion project. It was you just realizing that you were in a really special moment in time when COVID gave you, gave back the island to the residents. Yeah, no, Maui went through such an amazing transition during the shutdown. I mean, everything went quiet. The air was so clean. The reefs were having time to heal. Even our native birds started coming down a little lower. There were so many honu in the water. It was this moment, you know, for all of us. It was it was like the first time maybe since the 1950s that our islands had been so quiet with no tourists. And, and for me as a photographer, an image has to tell a story. And these images during this period that I took were telling the story of the island in this moment, this beautiful moment of rest and peace. So I did my first book that came out in 2015 about the King's Highway. I had walked the entire coast of Maui, and it was this amazing journey of discovery. And during this period, I felt that same discovery again. I felt that excitement about photographing the island because it felt so new to me. And it really was, you know, so much of my photography is about storytelling, and this really was the story of Maui during COVID and it was such a unique period of time for all of us and this book is for me it was a great way to share that with everyone and and what I learned you know there's some wonderful voices in this book people that I interviewed too one of my favorite quotes in the whole book was from Clifford Naoli who's a cultural practitioner here and he said people move to the island and see it through their eyes but in actuality the island is watching you After a certain point, if you're still here, the island will put its hand upon you and say, I choose you to accept this kuleana. You don't choose the island. The island chooses you. The island gives you the responsibility. The island gives you the love. It's up to you to make sure it happens. When it does happen, your legacy begins. And for me, that spoke volumes to, you know, this project and how the island gives us this opportunity and, you know, says this is why you're here. And for me, it was very evident in in this book. The deeper I went, you know, there was just so many beautiful waterfalls to find and native forests to explore. The island was just amazing during that period. And you were also able to take these long treks because... Things had shut down, and for you, that also affected your work. Yeah, everything was shut down. I mean, when you left your house, you know, there weren't any cars on the road. So, yeah, it was just this opportunity to see the island and really be alone on the island, walking on beaches that, you know, usually would have hundreds of tourists were completely empty. Or walking down Front Street in Lahaina, and sitting under the big banyan tree and eating lunch by myself and not seeing a car. It was a, a surreal experience, but it was getting to imagine what old Hawaii must have felt like. So for you, in, in this span of time, though, like you were saying, witnessing what an empty street or empty beach was like and really seeing how nature was taking front and center once again. Yeah, there's not a single photograph of a person in the book. It's all about the Aina. It's all about our land here and how special that is. You know, it's it's Maui free of development and and I tried to photograph as many of the native forests as I could. You know, the Makai section even, you know, getting to go and swim in Hanalua Bay in the morning where there's usually tour boats and so many people snorkeling and, and I'd walk out and I'd be all by myself and there would just be dozens of turtles just kind of sunning themselves on the surface of the water everywhere and there were a lot of (laughs) this book we went through so many challenges from losing our business in Paia that we've had for so many years to when we were working on the Makai section and going out to photograph the whale migration and my son and I got attacked by a shark and our boat actually got hit 
and sunk and we were out almost two miles and we had to swim in all the way with the shark in the water still it was a really scary moment but yeah we went through so much to get the book done and just been an amazing journey through the whole thing You've gone from the summit of Haleakala down to the coast, down into the water, to all the different areas. And one of my favorite shots is your cover with all the Honu on the beach. That was definitely one of the most magical moments for the whole book. It was during the period we had the, the Neowise Comet passing. And, I, you know, once every 5,800 years, this comet passes Earth. And I kept wanting to photograph it, but I wanted something really compelling to be in the foreground. So you had the comet in the background. And so I set up and I was at Hokiba Beach where we have a lot of turtles that come up in the evening. And I set up my tripod hoping maybe I'll get one or two turtles. And I watched and, you know, there were two turtles and all of a sudden there were six turtles and all of a sudden there were 12 turtles. There were 84 turtles. <laughs> By the end, and with the Neowise comet passing overhead, it was this amazing moment that I never thought it was going to happen that way. So, yeah, there were some beautiful moments, magic that happened, that came together during the making of this book. Wow, Daniel, I'm looking at the cover with a different lens on. Now I see the comet. It's like right over the U of Maui. Yeah, yeah. It's got like this little like sparkle. I was was looking... At the turtles. I mean, that's where I was like, oh my goodness, 84 turtles. And so for you, Mm -hmm. you you had this knowledge of this special moment. You knew the spot you were going to take that shot. And then things just unfolded from like two turtles, six turtles. And then to have that and this naturalness. I mean, this is where they hang out. And it was due to the fact that there weren't that many humans on the beach. No, and nobody was on the beach. I was by myself. How do you interact with people who come up to you who like to learn what it is that you do? One of my favorite things to do here on the island is I do photography tours. And I take people out and we go and we hike and we photograph the island. We work on different techniques and processes. We work on composition and lighting. And I love doing that. Getting to share photography, getting to share the island with people is one of my very, very favorite things to do. So, yeah, after my first book, I started doing Maui photography tours and workshops. And I do private tours. So I just take out usually one to two people. Sometimes I take out a family. But it's very personalized, so I get to work directly with each person. And my tours range from three hours all the way to, like, a full day when we go and we drive out to Hana. And we we photographed out there and we did the whole road to Hana. That's a full, long day. And with technology just advancing, are people just bringing like their regular phone cameras? Are we doing SLRs? Everybody has a really good camera in their pocket now with cell phones. So I take out all levels of photographer. I've taken out, you know, professionals shooting for magazines to amateurs just using an iPhone. And it's not about what camera you're shooting with. It's just that experience of getting out there and getting to photograph Maui, you know, and and knowing which places to go. You know, there's so many amazing kind of hidden spots that you know that are just beautiful and exciting to photograph. So I love doing tours here, and I do everything from helicopter tours of the island to going out on zodiacs to photograph whales to hiking and doing, you know, waterfalls. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Each area that you cover, it's just... I just want to ask you, how did you get that shot? Like, how did you get that misty swirliness in, like, EL Valley? So I hiked hours and hours to get back into the valley, like, way, way back. And it was getting dark. So a lot of times what I'll do is I'll open up my shutter and stretch out the shutter so I'll have long exposures. And if you're doing a long exposure of water, the water blurs out and it gets real kind of silky smooth. So it's, it's a technique I use, which I really like. You had mentioned color schemes in your book and how images talk yeah. to each other. Yeah, the process of making a book is really interesting. It's, it's so different than if I'm just working on a single photograph or even a photo essay for a magazine. When you're working on a book, there's a feeling that runs throughout that book. It's, it's a flow, and it's a really organic flow, and it has to be really cohesive. And so your colors have to work together. Your... Subjects have to work together. The images you take have to 
have a flow. And it's one of my favorite things to do when you're putting together a book because it's almost like a it's like a song, you know. It all really works together. Hopefully, works together. And that's one of the reasons I love making books. It's, it's this larger project, and it challenges you to to make sense of it, to tell a bigger story. And yeah, I was really happy with the way the images flow together for this book. How many pages total? The book's 204 pages. It's the same exact amount of pages for my Maui Coast Legacy of the King's Highway book. They're actually companion books. They go together. Mm. And so 204 pages. When did you say the song is done, this is the final note? That's always the hardest part, right? Is when is it done? You know, it's like if it was up to me, I would just keep working. You know, I have one book that I've been working on for 20 years, and it's all on vanishing cultures all over the world. So it's someday going to be a book. But with this one, it felt it was time. You know, things were wrapping up with COVID. People were going back to work. And I wanted this to be current. I wanted it to feel like, you know, this book is from right now. And so it was time to finish it and move on. So when it seems right, it was just time to finally put it all together. That was Maui photographer Daniel Sullivan in HPR's Lillian Song talking about the therapeutic nature of photography. Check out the conversation page of our website for images and links to his new book, Maui, Mauka de Makai. That does it for us today. Up tomorrow, we plan to hear from Big Island Ranchers about issues near and dear to their heart, and that includes pasture land. Got questions about something you heard on our show? Call our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And want to listen back to something you heard? You can find the Conversation Podcast on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you tune in. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.